Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Frame Rate, the podcast where we rate frames. Uh, this is a podcast, again, where we go through movies and we just discuss them the way we see fit. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, Abe Epperson, and I'd like, you t- like to introduce you to my other co-host, who will say his oh, name now. Now. Sorry, I jump in early. We rehearsed it so many times, I can't believe I screwed that up. My name's Michael <laughs> Swaim. I also rate The Frame, and uh, it's frankly a service you can find on no other podcast network. Two dudes mm-hmm. unpacking a film. Mm. So mm. if you found your way here, thank goodness, welcome. This is the one and only place to hear about film analysis, and you found it. Congratulations. You found it. Yeah. And if you read the title, today we're talking about a film from 2008 or the uh, international release 2009, Waltz with Bashir. Uh, yes. And I want to shout out to Zach Schwartz, who uh, gave us some money to talk about this movie through our Patreon Pick the Flick yeah. tier. Uh, anyone can do this at any time. You just go to our Patreon and uh, sign up for that flick and, w- and then email us uh, about what movie you want us to talk about and we'll... We'll get it going. So I just wanted to know, let people know that that exists if they didn't already know. Yeah, and Zach, um, this is either the third or fourth uh, yeah. pick, flick picked by Zach. So Zach at this point is one of, Zach the, attack. one of the beaniest beans. Yeah, so thank you, Zach, mm. for uh, keeping the lights on. And also, I just wanted to apologize. You'll notice we didn't introduce a guest. Zach did request Robert Brockway. If we, I'm sorry, Robert Evans. Brockway is also good, Robert. Um, but uh, Robert Evans of Behind the Bastards, if we could get him, I agree that would have been the perfect guest for this. Uh, but we wanted to get your episode out, and the holidays have compromised our ability to connect with Robert. So it's just me and Abe. And I will admit that while neither of us are as well-versed as Robert in uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the issue surrounding Syria and Lebanon. We are well-versed in film and human emotion and philosophy, and there's plenty to unpack with this film in that regard, so I'm sure we'll still have a good time. Mm-hmm. Also, mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. pick flick tier, we changed it to say that we will try to get the guest you want but can't guarantee it. So I think legally our asses are covered. I think so. And there's nothing Zach can do, so, <laughs> yeah. We, most of the time we get somebody that money's already spent i gave it to johnny yeah. papes to make some new extra extras so that's yeah, done. he's a little behind but you know he has a little behind but let's get into the film um basically an encapsulation of it it's uh directed and produced by ari fullman who irl was a soldier an israeli soldier and he fought in the uh, Lebanon War in 1982. And this documentary is, well, first of all, it's animated. We got to say that largely, 99.9%, which I think is one of its most effective techniques. Uh, but yes. it is an animated documentary. So you get the sense that the interviews and the information is all true. And indeed, this did happen to Ari Fullman. But he's gone ahead and animated those interactions so you sort of have the freedom to go from a still of someone who's just talking to camera in an interview which is animated to 
animations depicting what they're describing. And it's a very interesting technique. I don't believe I've seen it done before. I'm sure it has been done before or since. Like, I'm sure this isn't the only example of an animated documentary, but what an interesting idea to mash up animation and yeah. documentary. It's pretty film schooly, I got to say, because mm -hmm. if you've gone to film school, you're probably aware of the film La Jete. Sure, uh, which uh, is Chris Marcus was inspired by La Jete heavily. Yeah, and it kind of has a similar regard in that that's all still images, but it's basically narration uh, over like kind of nonlinear kind of uh, little visual poems. This is a little bit more exposition based. What you see is kind of what they're talking about, but it takes artistic license in terms of uh, like how dumb the soldiers are or how like. Uh, epic they see the war or how not epic they see the right because there's storytelling uh, done through like extras taking actions in the background and in a strict documentary sense that's not true or like capital t true we can't know whatever <clears throat> so there's yeah there's a viewpoint through animation but at the same time i think one of the themes of the film is we can't ever know so it's almost justifying its own genre because basically the plot which is exceedingly simple is and yet you know also the details are in will never be fully comprehended by any man or woman alive but uh the general plot is ari fullman is talking to a fellow veteran and realizes that he has blank spots in his memory of events that he know he he knows he was present at and his friend encourages him as a documentarian and just for his own health to like find out. And he goes and talks to a bunch of veterans and survivors of this conflict. And here's through that, we hear a number of their own stories from the war, but all under the framing device of Ari figuring out that he actually took place. He took part in a particular massacre. I'm scrolling just to make sure I don't fuck it up. But the, um, Sabra and the uh, Shatila ma massacre, which is one night uh, where 460, uh, between somewhere between 460 and 3,500 civilians, mostly Palestinians and Lebanese Shiites. Yeah. Also called the Lebanese uh, Christian Falange Massacre. It's yeah. the militia that carried out the massacre, yeah. Yes, yes. So it's and also called is... like the Falangite Massacre or something like that, but I think I'm saying yeah. it wrong. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, it's basically trying to play with the reality of what he's able to remember and trying to verify it with other people who were there or people who are surrounding that conflict who are there, boots on the ground kind of stuff. Yeah. And the scientific fact is very intentionally brought up and expounded upon at length that there have been psychological and statistical studies that prove that our memories are a series of stories and i gotta say this is one of the driving reasons i value what we do it's one of the reasons i think storytelling actually is important is that yes. uh even our own memories are stories we tell ourselves that are an amalgamation of things that our senses perceived and our neurons recorded that are accurate but also we encode those things into deep memory by collating them into a story and telling it to ourselves. And that is the story that is stored in deep memory. And it changes when you access it and retell it to yourself again. Like your cherished memories from childhood at this point are 
somewhat fabricated, if not fully fabricated, and memory can be fully fabricated, but even the ones that you think are like, I know that happened, the details have been sifted through like your brain figuring out a comprehensible little story to tell because that's an efficient way to interpret and record and store memories in your brain. So we are storytelling creatures. Like that's how we live and that's how we navigate the world around us. And I just think it's so interesting that through the lens of the chaos of war and trauma, which encourages memory disruption, that in the basically midpoint of this film, there's a long explanation of, you know, studies have proven that your memories can be easily fabricated, remade, molded. Witnesses, eyewitnesses are one of the least reliable forms of testimony, uh, on and on and on. And it's so... In that way, I think it's especially clever because it literally justifies what they're doing, which is I think some people would argue that a documentary should only be footage because the camera doesn't lie. And they're basically refuting that and saying, no, it's okay for us to do this. Life is actually a combination of things that really happened and our perception of those things. It's both. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's... Uh, I can come out and say it, I, I really like this movie. I think this movie is powerful. Uh, and for whatever propaganda uh, either side argues toward, I think it does stand as a, uh, as a work um, of one person's experience. Uh, we can trust that Ari Foldman, Fullman is like honest in everything uh, up to a point like everyone can kind of assess what they think is the truth and if he's doing this for a propagandist reason or not either way uh as a bot like as a piece of work it to me uh is very effective in what it's trying to accomplish so yeah well and if we're talking politically ultimately the big reveal so to speak is that he realizes that he was part of the team that lit the sky up with flares that allowed for this massacre of non-combatant Lebanese people yeah. and including small children, which we'll get to. But I think, and then I, it very powerfully correlates that to, of course, that's traumatic to you. You grew up steeped in the legacy of the concentration camps that persecuted you and the whole like philosophical fuckery of the Holocaust is that it's hard to imagine that a whole country went that way, like that would genocide, blah, blah, blah. And we've come to realize that the human mind is way more malleable than we thought. Authority can force you to do things you didn't think you could ever do mm -hmm. because of your heart or whatever. And mm -hmm. by having participated in this massacre, even though he has the same uh, defense that German Nazis offered at the Nuremberg trials. I was only following orders. He didn't know they were bombing women and children. He just knew that his boss told him to light the flares. So he lit the flares. And yet his feeling of complicity in that is so traumatic to him that he blotted out those memories until later in life. Out of, yeah. Out of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. So I and guess, uh, I believe... sorry, uh, I'll, I know I've been blathering on, but just to wrap up the thought, I think it has that self-deprecating value where uh, at the end of the day, even if it is propaganda, and I'd love for you, Abe, to unpack what that means in a filmmaking term, how all film is propaganda, uh, mm -hmm. he, he at the message is 
that he feels shame about his complicity. So in that way, I don't think politically anyone would come away with going, this is anti-blank group propaganda. It's more of a personal journey of his own guilt surrounding just the violence he took part in as being part of a, a war. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I believe the film is still banned in uh, Lebanon, which is just another little factoid that uh, may or may not be relevant to the listener uh, or the viewer. Um, who are the group yeah. who perpetrated the massacre of which sure. he was a part? Yeah. Okay, so they don't want um, to talk about it. That makes sense. Yeah, a word a word on clarification on the um, uh, when I say propagandist. I mean, there's propaganda films where it's literally like, uh, you know, uh, Lenny Reef. If you if you yeah. see something, say something. Kind of that's propaganda, as the term is used. Uh, I don't necessarily mean that. Nor do I mean to say that all films are propagandist. I do think that all films are political. Uh, when you come down to its basis elements, it's about social interaction, and what you know what that causes, uh, the causality or the correlations of people talking to people. So in that sense, all films are political. Um, but propagandist is tends to be a term that is thrown around in uh, film criticism circles only to mean that it has a thesis or a point to its narrative. So it can just be a story like there was a guy, he saw a ghost and he got scared and ran away. That doesn't really have like a... That's not a story that has a point necessarily, right? Uh a boy meets girl kind of thing that doesn't have a point, but there's a lot of movies that do try to say something and have a uh, thesis statement to in context at almost like an essay um, mean to say something about what they're talking about. Like uh, the resolution of this is these people are monsters or this is what we should do with our lives or, you know, or he feels shame about this as he should. It was bad to have done that. Right. And this movie, um, I don't think is propaganda. I think a lot of people will think it is. Uh, and I wanted to address that fairly early. Sure. But because it's such a hotbed issue. I also think Um, there's an, yeah, I also want to talk, speak to the aspect of, propaganda in a purely sociological sense of like it's as i think more and more people are becoming aware like our relationship to reality is filtered through all these variables and there's this very sticky like the person who is imbibing a piece of art puts projects themselves onto it and the person who created the art is filtering reality that's what art is through their Mm -hmm. own set of variables so you everyone's and it's kind of it's kind of beautiful like everyone's experience with a piece of art is truly unique and will never exist before or after Mm -hmm. like the rippling of neurons that fire in that moment and the thoughts that occur to that person are based on a set of biases and biases are neutral uh we talk about them mostly in how they're bad but bias is also how our brain categorizes things. So I, I just want to point out that when we say propaganda, I'm more talking about the level of like, even in the case you gave, guy sees a ghost and runs away, you could fairly unpack questions like, 
Why did the storyteller yes. say it's a guy? Why or a ghost? Why <laughs> so afterlife exists to this storyteller? That's confirmed. Yeah. Uh, does the guy run away mean that the storyteller is making a statement about masculinity failing in the face of true mm -hmm. danger? So everything bears on everything, which is why it's so delightful to be alive in a part of the universe. But uh, yes, I again, I guess I'm just underlining that I would argue this film is not propaganda in the pejorative sense. But yeah. it is interesting it is. how it plays with the idea of being <clears throat> everything is filtered through Ari Foldman's uniqueness. Like Yes. It's yes. His and that's story. something that's something for every viewer to determine for themselves. I don't think the point of this podcast is set to determine whether or not it is propaganda, but just how it is for us. Because there's um there's something about what my favorite my favorite moment of this film, undoubtedly, uh, is the ending. Uh, which is kind of the, uh, obviously, spoilers, but uh, you guys all know this at this point. I don't know why I even say it, but some people get mad in the comments. Um, the last shots of the film are kind of the coup de gras or the um, critical hit, to use a Dungeons and Dragons term, of the movie because you you didn't even know it was swelling to this moment. You didn't know Which that's is that you've been watching going. an yeah. animation film and then he displaces that animation in a single cut and shows actual footage of women crying uh, in the, the morning after the destruction where they hadn't been able to go see the dead bodies of loved ones. And now in the light of day, they are able to see that in fact, their homes have been destroyed and bombed and right. ordered to nothing. And it pans over and, and you're bodies literally on the seeing ground. real footage of crushed <clears throat> children under the rubble. Right. And, this whole time you've been like, I see. Ah, yes, how tragic. It sure is nice that this is a cartoon, though. And then mm -hmm. at the end he goes, it's not, though. Like, just to be clear, you all know. It's not. It did. And this uh, is real, though. And there's something. Holy shit. Like, it's to me, it is a, yeah. it's a film trick to tip your hat to regardless of what mm -hmm. the theme is or what the political ideology of whatever its goal is. As appreciators of people who set up and pay off filmic strategy to me that was on the order of like when i saw glorious bastards and hitler died and i'm like you can do that i was like holy shit like as soon as it happened i was like point taken sir i mean my right. god i mean let's be honest i was weeping alone in my apartment but, yeah, yeah it always every time i've seen it i've seen it i think twice maybe three times at this point uh it always gets me um and it's there's something about yes it can be propaganda if you do believe that this is him spoon feeding you the horribleness of a nation state. But I think, I think that that cut to, because he doesn't show the dead bodies in video because he doesn't have any narration over the video. He's only trying to singularly attempt to portray a moment in time that actually just occurred, which is women crying. Um, now you can take in context that to me be propaganda. And if you believe that and watch this film and take that away, you know, peace be with you kind of thing. But, um, I, my personal view of it is, it isn't propagandist because all it means to say is that, I mean, there is a political, there is a political, uh, argument that war is bad, but I don't think that that's really something that needs to be propagandist at this point. It's kind of, 
not, yeah. it's kind of a statement that it is a priori in its own I kind of ethical dilemma. I feel like the movie's dilemma. interest is more purely human. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just saying, like, All Quiet on the Western Front comes to mind. It's saying that you could even have the political opinion, whatever, given the parameters, that you don't consider it a massacre and you're super pro your side and what happened and you think massacres are necessary. And he's just saying, like, they are human beings, though. And that's yeah. one of the most important reminders we need when we're locked in conflict. He goes, like, right. we were human beings when the Nazis gassed us. And the yeah. people we bomb are also human beings. So, like, you got to take that cost into account, whatever you do. Mm -hmm. It's true. And it <laughs> yeah. goes with the, uh, I find, a very courageous act, which is to take within the 60 years of it happening, like this guy's parents, uh, yeah. guilt of firing the flares to light the way of a horrible, horrible massacre. And it's like, he's able to say with both hands in one film, look at how horrible the deeds we did. Look at the horrible deeds that are done to us. I don't think he's trying to shine a light and like soldiering is bad. I don't think he's trying to shine a light to say that uh, any particular human is bad. He's just trying to shine a light on war is not a ought not be a part of the human equation. Yeah. And I don't find that. And whether that uh, makes it more or less valuable to you, I would argue that uh, one of the red flags not even red flags because it's not always necessarily bad. But one of the signs that something is propaganda is that it offers a clear answer to the question it raises. Yes. This film does not really. And mm. so if you're looking for what, if you're looking to suss out what your opinion is on the Israeli Palestine conflict, uh, I think this is a very important human piece of information, but it's not like the information that's going to guide you towards what your opinion is. You know what I mean? It's not like an info dump. It's these human moments, because as he journeys through this process, he is basically just interviewing veterans, and they each essentially have a story of their own that bears on the theme very directly. Uh, the one that really comes to mind, since we're talking about the ending already, is uh, the guy who witnessed, uh, who was part of a massacre, or present during a massacre, and he says... But couldn't you tell that they were being massacred? And he goes like, well, I didn't know for sure. And he goes, but didn't you notice bulldozers digging mass graves? And didn't you know trucks go leaving with people and coming back empty? And he goes, yeah, and I, there's a weird cognitive dissonance of war that I can't really explain. And But I... I, Michael Swain, believe this. I've heard it in enough, from enough people who were in war. Uh it's surreal or like I didn't, there's a lag to like admitting what's going on or fully understanding <clears throat> what's going on. And then he goes, yeah. and I love this, like the banality of horror moment. He goes, well, how did it end? And he goes, finally, someone with any air of authority came over and said, Hey, stop, stop shooting the children. It's over. We're yeah. done now. And Go he on. goes, Oh, and did they fight back? No, they immediately stopped. And that's the tragedy that you're like, it was just a switch and they could. It's like you accidentally left the stove on, but it's killing children. <laughs> like they could have fucking stopped yeah, at metaphor. any time. The victory is already won, 
but X number of human beings had to suffer the most terrifying mm-hmm. death circumstances because we just let it run for a little while longer before we wound it down. Mm-hmm. That got yeah, and me, I suggest <laughs> I, I suggest to watch this film, and in the same breath, uh, if you have more of an American sentiment, there's a limited series on HBO done by David Simon, oh, who's yeah. the creator of <laughs> The Wire, and... Uh, uh, he was he wrote on homicide life on the streets and stuff, but he created a immediately after the wire created a series called Generation Kill, which kind of ha- speaks about the same kind of um, like ineffable quality of war that like kicking up the ladder causes this kind of like ripple. Effect. I guess for yeah. yeah this ripple effect, but also this this feeling of like incompetence. That isn't necessarily like I think that David Simon shows his hand a little bit more in that by actually making them idiots like the captains and the generals are all power hungry or just incompetent, you know, period. Uh, I think there's something about in this movie becomes a theme where time and time again, as we go through the different interviews, people kind of reminisce on the idea of like, I don't know who I was shooting at. And it's kind of to comedic effect, despite its darkness, um, we see animations of like soldiers and tanks firing guns all throughout the night without ever pausing. And we don't see who they're shooting. They oh, don't yeah. even know what they're shooting. They, they just have to keep their, they just have to keep refilling the ammo dump. They say to each other, the button. what are we doing? And he goes, we're shooting it out outward direction and he's like like, is there enemy there he's like i don't know reload your gun and keep shooting do you want to die like just shoot out just shoot out (laughs) just out out there and that's That's part of where they are that's part of an amazing story that i think speaks so well to like the sheer animal panic of being in a life-threatening situation and then how we lay our systems of perception on what it means which again is what the film is about what does it mean to kill a bunch of children and in their homes what does it mean we decide what it means and like this story that we're that we're touching on is this guy talking about how he was in a tank and they got they fired all right out of sheer panic and then finally when enemies did come they were immediately overrun and he managed to run out of the tank and run away and he says maybe my memory's faulty but i'm pretty sure other people were running too but nevertheless, I ended up hiding behind a rock and then swimming into the sea and like hiding a mile out by like swimming all night. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, I, I make my way back to my camp and I find out the rest of the tank squadron stayed with the tank and repelled the invasion and got the tank back to base. And they all think that I'm like a traitor and a coward. He was fearful of that, and he's but like, he was and surprised that they didn't think that. Oh, that's right. They, he's, I'm sorry. You're right. That's an even more poignant. A lot of them died. It's that he just they returned don't treat to his regiment, and everyone clearly ran uh, at some point. But he views himself he just ran, that way, and he th- he just tr- yeah he because he felt the immediacy of running. It's like I was now in command because I saw my command my, my, my the one who's first yeah. in command got shot in the in the neck. And then he sat there for two minutes and didn't not didn't what, know what to do. And then Ronnie, when he returns to his regiment, thought that everyone was going to call him a traitor. Surprisingly, and that's why he went to their graves that's so right. many He's times. Like he had this amount But despite of their politeness, we did all slowly lose touch. And I know for a fact that they all keep in touch with each other. And nothing's ever been said. But I suspect that everyone thinks I'm a traitor and a coward. And <clears throat> right. that's, again, like, all you were, you were just like a rabbit 
being chased by a wolf and you did what any rabbit would do, like mm -hmm. hide and survive, fight or flight. But because humans can think and have symbolism, now it's affected your whole life in this way. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And in that way, it's about the malleability of memory. And it's like we're all sharing memories, but we're also like one of the biggest stop gaps for uh, Ari when he's interviewing people is they don't know. They're like, oh, I can't remember if you were there or not. Other times it's like, of course you were there. You were you were there. He's like, do you remember what I was doing? No, I don't remember. Yeah. You know, like it's just no one really recalls either yeah. because of Phys crippling, Physiologically, crippling it turns out it yeah. is a scientific thing that if your adrenaline is flooding at maximum and, p and bullets are going by you, you are worse at encoding memories. Like it's very common mm -hmm. to not remember all the details of a war battle. There's a great story that's kind of happens a little after the midpoint when Ari sits, sits down with Professor Solomon, the woman who's uh, just a, uh, I believe she's, she's not a psychiatrist. I can't remember what her credentials are, but she tells a story about when she's talking to some veterans and they're a bit, how their memories kind of altered or how they perceive past events. She talks to one of uh, a vet who used to who was a photographer. Oh yeah, wasn't necessarily a photographer in the war, but like that was just oh, his wow. vocation I'm or sorry. his interest. I'm just realizing now that every single segment bears on perception, yes. which I didn't even yes. connect at first. But you go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the photographer. Just to finish that story, just the photographer. W the apt kind of uh, illusion that that story makes is a photographer got through war at first by thinking of things as a long day trip, living through this kind of artificial camera that they created in their head. Like this isn't my point of view. This is a camera's point of view. I'm like, I can't die. I'm the photographer. I'm not even yeah, here. Yeah, it's like kind of this um, safety, uh, this kind of security blanket. But then his imaginary camera broke when he went to the Hippodrome, which is where he saw at a stable a bunch of dead, wounded horses, hundreds of horses dead at a stable. And that's when the camera stopped functioning and he realized he was at that event. So it's like even our self-defense mechanisms up to a point they work until you have to deal with the reality of what you're faced with. And that's another aspect of this movie is that the movie is kind of a love note to the brain. Also, the amazing brain's capacity of... to oh, ahead, cover sorry. up shit. But at the same point, it's kind of like the brain will always succeed in telling you really what it remembers if you really, really dig at it. And um, your brain will encode stories that are conducive to your survival. It doesn't mean they're true. It just means that it will work itself out. Yes. Off, and that is like the most common reason for memory gaps besides like drugs actually affecting the function of your brain physically is trauma. And it's because it wasn't conducive to your continued functioning to remember that trauma right now. And you may later when you have the coping mechanisms to deal with it. Uh, that's a very common experience of a lot of people. And I was just going to point out what you just brought up has amazing resonance with the Three Kings scene where mm. uh, they stop and see the pelicans covered in oil and mm. the reporter who has seemed to so be able to yeah. be completely detached about the horrors she's witnessing, the fact that it's animals, she starts crying and goes, it's all so fucking horrible. <laughs> like like yeah. it's sinking in for the first time, even though she's been there for weeks. Yeah. <clears throat> and that actually comes, that's great because that actually comes 
the Professor Solomon segment comes right after the Frankel sa- statement. Yes. Or the that interview. Oh, also it must be Which said is, that David Simon once called you a humorless fuckface on Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah, that's fun. That's true. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> it's it's fine. I don't think he knew what I was trying to say. Uh, Frankel was the uh, character who put pastoli oil as a strong scent Patchouli. on him, on his person. Yeah. Patchouli, yeah, because. Um, he it even in the weeds you can smell it everywhere which is not a good thing for a soldier to wear but the reason he was doing it is because he was told that he walked too fast and he was a little scared i think of like them not knowing who he was and getting he was more worried about friendly, friendly fire, fire yeah. knowing how jumpy everyone was that he at least knew that if he even if he got ahead of the gang the strong scent they would go oh that's just frank and i think it's uh, very intentional was, that his interview takes place well, he is wearing a martial gi and is like practicing fighting moves at his right. like dojo. So the feeling is another nod to the idea that perception, like he has now, the way for him to cope is he feels that if he keeps himself strong and knowledgeable about fighting, he feels safer in some way. He, that puts a buffer mm-hmm. between him and the madness. Yeah, and his story goes is actually uh, his, his. This part of the story is actually told by a, a wartime journalist, who's the the Ron character, mm-hmm. who is kind of seen as above everything because I think he had seen so much war at that and point. And is the one that he was just him walking around doing it, like no, 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 figure it out. You got to keep going. Yeah, yeah. His story was just walking around, even though his like his videographer was like huddling around and terrified of all the bullets like he was just walking gallivantly around like it didn't matter uh because i think it's just how you perceive things but in his story about frankel frankel was a guy who grabbed a gun went in the middle of the square kind of in the same way if you've seen band of brothers if you remember i think that the captain's name is like sharp or something like that sharp or something sharp out yeah i can't remember but he's the but like he just he was like badass or perceived to be badass by everyone uh, else because he just went out fear but if that makes you badass yeah right but no one knows quite what why frankel did it but he went into the middle of like where all the gunfire was in in between both sides and kind of just started firing in nowhere in particular up in the air and the banners of bashir are behind him and he's kind of they describe it as a waltz and that's where the name of the movie comes from and i think it's kind of uh, supposed to be a little bit of a, like it's a little bit of a metaphor for what this all is, which is just how you posture yourself seems to be your reality in wartime, especially, or at least that's where it Not comes that out. He couldn't as have gotten com- hit by a bullet, but he didn't. Yeah, yeah. It's his version of those events are that he needed to do that. Everyone else's version of the events is look at that crazy man. You know, yeah. and it's also interesting to me, and maybe it's not actually interesting, but it occurs to me to think of this movie like an album because they are self-contained sort of segments, and this would be the title track. And I think if you look at it that way, it's a well-chosen title track. Like Ari Fulman knows what hits, um, what slaps, and <laughs> like for war imagery, that segment also really got to me and especially because i think it's what we're talking about is everyone finds their security blanket and everyone figures out everyone makes deals with themselves that are superstitious like well i'm more likely to live if i do this this makes me feel safe oh that's how i'll live oh i can't die because i'm the photographer and in this case he was 
marginally better at firing a particular kind of gun than the other soldiers. And he's entrenched it while bullets are flying everywhere with another guy who has that kind of gun. And to him, that feels like a sign. And he goes, I should have that gun. Give me that gun. The guy goes, just shoot. What are you doing? You can't take my gun. And he says, give me that gun or I'm going to take it by force. And he ends up taking it by force, jumping out from cover and dancing while shooting. And I think it speaks to the idea that he has the gun that he thinks he's supposed to have. And so he feels that he's invincible. He thinks he got the Mario star. And sometimes that works out. Sometimes your sheer confidence, like his wild erratic fire probably did cause the enemy to experience excess <clears throat> fear and duck down for a second, you know, but it's not magic. It's the force of sheer willpower and perception colliding against yeah. the willpower of another set of humans who are just as scared and, and just as sure that they'll survive for X, Y, Z reason. And what makes that a beautiful, in addition, because I agree with all of that, uh, in addition, what makes that so beautiful to me is that it, it's not one of those things where we often, when we look for truth in stuff that doesn't make sense to us initially, things like war, things like these bigger issues of like, why do we have to do this kind of thing? If you're at some form of remove, you, you search for, well, there must be some kind of magic bullet that I'm not getting. There must be something that I have to tread lightly upon when I'm discussing these matters, which, you know, can be true. But like, we're not cracking the as many truth jokes of this, as we usually do. Like, well, it's not one of those. Episodes. I agree that it's uh, appropriate, but I just think it also speaks to shared unspoken rules about perception and solemnity. And it's interesting. That's when, well when said, I was well a 17 said. year old shithead, I would be making edgy thing jokes. I would think were edgy. And now that I'm 34, I would never, it's interesting. <laughs> it's, you know, you, it's learning response as well, yeah. but uh, yeah, like, it's not about knowing it's not about from one person's perception of why this guy is waltzing with Bashir, you know, like as it's not like, Oh, that's the right. That's the right. He's got it right. He knew what was happening with that guy. Some people think, Oh, he's a hero and he's making a point. Other people saying that's a crazy man, him going like, this is how it has to be. Uh, I think that's a parable for what, this movie and therefore the the massacre in 1982 kind of was to him and it's kind of supported by the idea of just like when someone with any power whatsoever comes in and says stop go home it's over is that the harsh reality of this war to at a certain point became not that anyone it's not that anyone everyone was incompetent it's that no one truly knew what they were doing there and why they were doing it. They just knew that they had to fight for this piece of land. And no one is, and we're at such a remove there that they just knew, and he says it in an interview, uh, Ari Fulman says at one point in an interview, uh, I think it's DP slash 20, uh, he talks about how uh, like he personifies the Israeli forces as like a family because like it runs deep, the idea that like, uh, if you attack my brother, I'm going to have to come get you. And that's kind of the motivating factor for all and of this war, right? And everything is through the veil of icons. Like they say, one guy says, how could they not know there was going to be a massacre? Those guys yeah. thought Bashir was the way I think of David Bowie. And you know what he means yeah. is that Bashir yeah. is a celebrity that they identified with and thought was like their best he's friend. elected. They yeah, loved all that him stuff, in a and genuine way. Dead. That means if you assassinate you know? him, how could you not expect them to come at you? 
They're so the if there isn't a magic bullet for Bashir, yeah. If there isn't like one streamlined version of truth that we just aren't getting, and that's not the reality of how we seek truth, and the reality is closer to no one really knowing what they're doing, maybe having an idea of what they are personally doing or has worked it out in their perception of this is how it goes. Uh, everyone, it's so big and like the world has so many different versions of the truth that the the real truth is almost unknowable because everyone is kind of just ambling around doing the thing that they think they're supposed to be doing. Who's to blame for the multiplicity of, uh, you know, causes that go into an event much in the same way of lighting the pass passage for bombs and mortars to kill thousands, possibly thousands of people. Like, are you to blame for that? Are you entirely to blame for it? What is your, you know, what is your sentence? Who is the arbiter of these kind of things? This is what I think Ari Fullman's trying to bring up is the idea that there is no true truth when it all is in, descended into memory because everyone's memory is so different that the real event, and not only that, the real events themselves and why people are operating the way that they're operating seems to just be things like kicking it up the ladder or uh, we have to do it because otherwise we'll be shot kind or of stuff. Or as in the case of The Wire, which I do think David Simon, it will probably stand as Simon's masterpiece. Uh, although Generation Kill is excellent, but I agree with you, it's more delves into human failing, whereas I think the point of The Wire is, no, don't you yes. see? Almost everyone is doing what you would do, given the information they have, but they don't have all the information, and life is too complex for anyone to have all the information, therefore... We're fucked. And I'm sorry to say that, but I think The Wire makes a very compelling case for why, mm -hmm. uh, and to quote Jesus, the poor will always be with us. Or like, um, not that we should stop trying by any means, but uh, life is more chaos than you think. And uh, a lot of the things we imagine will happen uh, of their own accord over the fullness of time mm -hmm. may not. That like they may be baked in that there will always be strife and chaos and war. That there's just a systemic approach that makes it seem intractable. And I think the amazing thing about people like David Simon and Ari Fullman, and I would add Vonnegut to that, are these like dark-eyed cynics who clearly see a lot of the mechanisms that make sadness a part of the human experience and tragedy and trauma a part of the human experience without discounting that it's tragic like there are so many i think the uh, the type of creator is way more common where they go i'm i'm i've seen that the world is shit here's my art it explains how the world is shit uh aren't i smart and i really appreciate the artist who goes i've seen kind of why the world is shit here's why the world is shit isn't that sad can't we figure out uh, like like not giving up you know what i mean cynicism without giving up um mm -hmm. he has yeah, not jaded a... himself and he is still willing to feel the trauma because he still believes it's vital that to experience it shows respect to what went down to a, to experience the appropriate emotional response um being jaded is it's so easy to become jaded when you're so smart or so perspicacious that you see the intractability of a lot of human misery. Uh, and I really appreciate our artists who can see the intractability of human misery and not 
just become depressing, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, citing the interview again, like he says uh, about the film uh, and about the conflict at large, uh, that it's to be said that there's a lot of things that we can be doing. It's also another thing, and almost equally as important, that there's a lot of things that we need to stop doing. Um, and I think that there, there's, there's a power in that suggestion because it's, it's about, it's about when we get that rallying cry, you know, to some fire, you know, ignites in us where we say that this is the principle that we need to, you know, focus sure. on. Nine uh, eleven. We have to fuck some shit. We up. have to do this. That's Climate response. is. Yeah. The earth is burning down, so we have to do this. This is all important. We need to do that. In addition, we need to make sure to check ourselves constantly that when we actually do that barking or throw those barking orders down the ladder and when things are being kicked back up saying like, you know, that there's massacres happening because people are turning this into zeal. The machine is Um, spinning sloppily trying to get the thing done. Yeah. And and boots on the ground are not going to be able to distinguish, you know, in a in a just a. In, this, in the, the, the time it takes to fire a bullet, the difference between one thing or another or the, the moral complications that are going to string from it after, um, there's so much of it. And it, it's not complex in that any particular issue is complex. It's just that there's so much of it. And therefore, that's the complexity. There's just a lot of it. And um, if we need to stop ourselves and ask ourselves, when we do get into a war and we feel it's justified... We need to think about how we operate and we need to think about what we can't do and what we need to stop doing just as much as what we need to think about doing for the betterment of humanity. Well, do you know about the, I'm so I wish I could remember, but I don't want to waste time Googling it. So I forget which president talked about this, but uh, the, at the time that we were first developing nuclear bombs and we were discussing, not we, but you know, the presidential, we were discussing uh, how does that work with the access code specifically, right? With the two guys with the keys, only the president should have the code that would actually cause a nuclear bomb to fly out of the silo. How do we manage that? Some uh, political figure who's notable, but uh, it doesn't matter. You can look it up later. Uh, It's not the point of why I bring it up posited that the way it should be is that the nuclear football, meaning the briefcase that has the launch codes in it, should be handcuffed to a Secret Service agent's wrist, which we do do. But what they said was that the key to the handcuffs should be uh, surgically implanted in the chest cavity of the Secret Service agent. The reason being that if the president was about to agree for political reasons that may be abstract in their mind at that time to launch a nuclear bomb and inflict that kind of death upon that many people, they should have to stab someone to death and dig around their insides and get the key. And obviously Mm. there's so many reasons that didn't fly, but that's actually like inspirational to me that that was brought up because I agree wholeheartedly in the ethos behind it. It's so weird to think that that you know Eisenhower. I, I'm probably seems stupid if I'm wrong, but I think it was Eisenhower. Uh, you know, said yeah, Nagasaki, yeah, Hiroshima, and 
has no understanding, especially because the science was new, of what he's really doing. He does. He can't know. He can't really yeah, experience yeah. the consequences of what he's doing. I believe it was. I actually think I remember. Uh, it was a major of some kind who asked basically that question: How can I know that like an order that I'm getting to launch these missiles is coming from a sane person? Uh, and so they gave this. They gave a a, per, a particular commission officer in the United States military a background check, uh, and they make sure that. And it's not necessarily. I'm looking at the Wikipedia now for this particular person who has no real name and it's they're required to be by the president at all times mm -hmm. and uh they are from different like it switches between five different uh service branches like the point is that they get a background check that is a yankee white which is the most background checky that we can do uh, like but it your keeps whole switching life you've been boring you haven't done anything crazy right <laughs> And uh, they are uh, they are basically forced to serve as basically that person who's just like in case any shit goes down at any time, I'm the one who's gonna like I immediately activate. I am just a follower until I'm the most important person in the world. Right, and as uh, we covered on crack, that's happened. We've had like the during the Bay Pigs, there was an instance where the only reason large swaths of the earth are on a radio right now is that the person who physically was on the switch said mm -hmm. no like denied the orders because they were like uh i'm not sure now that it comes down to it that i'm willing to launch this nuclear missile and then things got sorted out and the order was withdrawn like that's just yeah. crazy to think about and as we continue to try and domesticate ourselves as humans and a large part of the way we do that is by like gamifying and controlling the feed of our perception and information. It makes me wonder if there's any way to apply that to war. Like I'm, I'm imagining a sci-fi scenario where soldiers have augmented reality that actually encourages them to make thoughtful moral decisions mm -hmm. before making tactical decisions, but I don't see what system of military aggression would ever approve that technology being used, you know, cause it's antithetical to their like goal. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how much thought we give to an impossible question. Like, um, could we ever get along and all be safe? That's the main thing. Cause we are animals. It's like, Oh, we end up killing other one, other ones like us because we, feel like it's how we survive is it theoretically possible for us all to be safe and survive and not have to kill each other is that possible i don't know i don't know <laughs> I don't know. if you're waiting for the answer to that from this podcast sorry i don't think <laughs> yeah. smarter people than us have figured that out but yeah returning re returning to waltz with bashir mm, please uh i love that he himself has this quote. He says, memory's dynamic, it's alive. If some details are missing, memory fills in the holes with things that never happened. Uh, it's equally as impossible as this kind of shared uh, community thought that we have that we are safe. Uh, we fill our perception of s safety with, we fill the holes of that 
with things that may never actually be true. You know, it's the same thing like Ron walking around and just not worrying about bullets hitting him. He survived. Who's to say if he was right or wrong about walking around? A lot of people would probably point to him and go like, you're very stupid. And, uh, for doing that, he did survive. It could have been asking to be shot and he just made it out. Or it could be that he was right all along and people were just not really shooting at anyone in particular. They were just shooting. Well, and I've read through, around. through stuff Robert turned me on to that like it's a common thing for people who have had the life experience where they've actually multiple times swept machine gun fire across crowds. They mm -hmm. report that. It is high. It's unusual, and it almost feels supernatural or like destiny. How you can sweep a machine gun across a crowd, and on some days every bullet will hit someone, and on some days no one will get hit. And right. That, what yeah. does that mean, if anything? <laughs> you know, bringing up Generation Kill again, just because it, like, I don't know. It's it's got another app scene. Uh, the guy who played Troy in uh, Inside uh, Lewin Davis. Uh, he's Troy V. The, he was the military he was the man. guy who's military yeah. man. Uh, I forget the actor's name, um, but he was in the Generation Kill as like one of the good guys. Okay, and he's asking a question: Is like you're asking me is to the journalist? He's like, is is Iraq safe? He's like, well, to you right now, you're standing in the middle of the out in out in the middle of the op uh, open, getting shot at. Maybe it's not safe to you. But right now, I'm behind a tire. So and Iraq that tire protects me from the... So here it is safe. <laughs> yeah. There it isn't. And it's like, it's such a great dichotomy to separate that because that the amount of like mental gymnastics in order to prove and feel safe that that you know, captain has to do. It's not that he's wrong. It's just that that's how our brain works. Our brain, in order to allow us to keep our cool under pressure and things like that, has to create these kind of um, narratives. I'm not calling them false narratives, yeah. but we fill the holes with things that never well, happened. It takes, that takes the us all the way. Necessarily true. That takes us all the way back to the very first frame rate episode, Saving Private Ryan, where we unpacked this, the shot where uh, Vin Diesel is, it's a, it's a wide, it's like a postcard shot and there's people actively hiding for their lives behind a tiny piece of cover while taking machine gun fire. And on the left of frame, because Vin Diesel happens to be behind a sturdy upturned apple cart and every bullet that hits it just seems to bury and not go through, is calmly eating apples because he hasn't eaten in a while. It's like you're mm -hmm. just safe on left of frame and not on right of frame. Uh, yeah, same message. Another amazing instance of getting that message across. Yeah, it's uh, and it is about the truth. It is about where bullets are flying, but it's also about your perception of well, that. and our feeling. If you feel that those bullets are trying to aim true, or those bullets are just like random, bullets or if you know the person just... on the other end of the gun is targeting you or someone else next yeah, to you instead. Exactly. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I think I lost my train of thought. Sorry. <laughs> I had something. But uh yeah. Man. I'm in I'm interested in how many other things I love this connects to. And of course it's much beloved and won many, many awards and was very well received. Um so I do recommend people watch it for sure. Yeah, I went to Con uh and it it got a lot of international hubbub because of being 
blacklisted yeah. by Lebanon. It's, uh, it, for all, we have to also say uh, the United States being more friends with the Israelis than with the Palestinians. Right. Uh, it was it was definitely shepherded by American uh, cinema. So it became more than let's say a Palestinian. It became film. touched by propaganda. If it That's didn't come from way that place, it. yeah. Uh, yeah, well, systems are propagandistic, and it, it became a part of the mm-hmm. sy- the wider world. I remembered what I was going to say, which is that uh, I just think one of the most primal, I mean, it's the whole horror genre, one of the most primal things all humans have in common is most humans have in common. I understand there are people with an inability to experience this, but is the fight-or-flight response um, one of the most primal things you can talk about is does this character feel safe or not right now? And I think it's fascinating to know that you don't know if you're going to have a brain aneurysm a second from now. How do you even like unpacking that question of what is safe to quote another movie? Is it safe? (laughs) Is such a primal and yet fascinating question. Is it safe? Are you safe? What is safety? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're definitely gonna die. So in the scheme of a being that's observing this situation who lives millions of years, none of us are safe. What is it to Mm -hmm. be safe? And yet one of our most valued experiences is to not feel in danger. (laughs) And yet Mm -hmm. uh, we spend so so much of our time making sure other humans around us do feel in danger. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to think about. And, yeah, much like the yeah. movie, like I'm just going to ask questions. These are the movie is striking at questions we can't answer, obviously. <laughs> and I'm glad we got to this point without mentioning it because now, much like the film that we're talking about, where 99% of it is going to be one thing, and then the last one percent is a different thing. I just want to remind viewers that we're about to wrap that alive or (laughs) if you haven't seen it be prepared for the first sequence being uh, a story basically being told by Ari Fullman the creator and writer and director of the story that you're watching confessing to camera that he went out and was told that they had to look for Palestinian criminals. And he said, what do we look for? He's like, well, we're actually not supposed to shoot people, but you can shoot dogs. And he shot and killed 26 dogs. Oh yeah. If you're, which is why he has a dream of 26 dogs wanting to kill him. So just know that, uh, I, you know, revered filmmaker, Harry Fullman, dog shooter. I believe he also shot a child who was firing an RPG at things, right? Or is that someone else? I think that, I don't know if that was him. It was hard to say. I think that that was a story. It flowed into an animated dream sequence and I wasn't fully clear on who it happened to. Yeah, I think that was more of a story from Ronnie. So I don't think that that was actually, uh, even though they were part of the same regiment. That happens in this, this conflict in particular. That is a yeah, staple of it. This kind of stuff happens. Uh, you and see it represented in American Sniper. I think he shoots a pretty young kid because the kid has an RPG. The kid fires the an kid's RPG shooting rockets. Yeah, yeah, his job is to stop that. So 
the only reason I mention it, even though I'm sorry to mention to the listeners, you know, in the last breath. Oh, people dogs. love dogs. I think it's a fair warning for people. Like if it's a fair warning, I mean, you, uh, but it's also Jen and I just went through Chernobyl and I appreciated that you warned us that there's an episode where about half of it is about shooting all yeah. the dogs. Cause I want, I was happy to be mentally prepared for that. Prepared for it. People yeah. love dogs uh, man. I love dogs. No, I love dogs. <laughs> yeah, like, we watch. all love dogs, yeah. right? We all love dogs. It's cause a dog just can saying, never betray you or fuck you over. They're too dumb. So there's something pure. I think my boulder them. point, <laughs> my boulder point isn't necessarily though. If you want to, you can obviously just hate this person for having, for doing that or following orders and doing that. I mean, it's an it's an analogy for lighting the way for mortars to kill humans. Well, he was told the dogs uh, will bark and they'll kill us, so that's your choice. Yeah, or whatever. Do you want you know, all your but, fr- human friends to die, or do you want to shoot these twenty six dogs? <clears throat> My point is that even smack in the film itself shows its own kind, like hypocrisy rears its like wrathful smile towards all like it does this thing where it's like we none of us are safe from that hypocrisy if we take part in those events and this is Ari very I think it's kind of courageous even though shooting a dog is not courageous in any sense of the word in in, in but admitting it is dude he admits it at the beginning yeah and then at the end admits to lighting the way uh, for Palestinian children and men being killed, uh, you know, yeah. like it's, I, it's, it's a tough movie, and I think at the heart of it is this idea of like, look at, look at what we can, our brains can convince us is okay to do, yeah, and that is really, the testament of the movie. Well said. I really appreciate that insight because it's true. The one person I weirdly had not empathized with fully was Ari or at least I abstracted it I thought of him as the filmmaker you know what I mean and that's me giving my own categorizations and buffers but I was like he's the filmmaker he dispensed this to me I had yet to connect in a visceral way like in the same way of like when I sat down to do the tales from the pit admitting that I have a serious problem with alcohol I'm like he's a real human he had to sit down and go all right, I'm going to make a movie where I say I committed war crimes. I'm going to mm-hmm. say that. I'm going to release the movie. That's pretty trippy to think about being him and undergoing that and making yeah, that decision. Yeah, it, it took now. four years to make. Yeah. That's an, also another thing. So he sat in this for four years. Yeah. It wasn't like you knock it out. Yeah, I, it, I think weekend. it's up there. Act of Killing, I think, is the most mind-fucking powerful experiment in in documentary film that's ever, ever been executed. But this is in the ballpark with that, so that's saying something. It had similar... That one does have a little bit of remove, kind of like Making of a Murderer, where it's like, look at the atrocities, as opposed to... It does, and yet... uh, A memoir of atrocities. I won't spoil it, because this is not the episode about active killing, which is on the list. Um... But the thing they did is just so meta clever and so impactful. I can't. It's like a staggering achievement of human society. Act of killing, in my opinion. I can't believe they got that footage. It's mind. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to thank anyone for that, other than the filmmakers, I want to throw in the mix. Martin Scorsese made that 
Oh, did he? He was instrumental in making you see that. That was an unknown film oh, that had already been released him. and had passed over. And he watched it and he said, what, what, what is are you talking doing? about? This is one of the more this... important films ever to come out yeah. ever. <laughs> Let's re-release it with my money. Uh, so that's something. I guess it's something. I was just, yeah. I, there's a tweet I wasn't, I was too scared to release, but so I'll just say it on the air. Uh, I think my hottest film take is that I honestly feel it's a tragedy that actors like Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino had so much of their careers wasted doing masculine gangster bullshit with Martin Scorsese. I don't like any Scorsese movie, I've come to realize. I think they're dumb and silly. Well, maybe we're going to have to do uh, like a Goodfellas. Uh, I hate Goodfellas. We can do it. One I haven't seen that I'm like, some people have said, oh, well, if you haven't seen that, you can't talk is Raging Bull. So maybe that'll change my mind. I don't know. That one is one of the better ones. As Um, on the spectrum of energies, I'm not a super masculine dude. So I would just say the stuff Scorsese talks about, I find silly and boring and machismo bullshit. Personally. Yeah, I don't know I how mean, we I, got here, but I know it's yeah. my fault. But it's probably time to wrap up, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's time to wrap up. I have things to say, but that is why we're friends. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks again to Zach for giving us a yeah. conversation that I, I, for one, enjoyed. I thought this uh, was really deep and insightful. I hope people get something out I of it. I hope it, it was yeah. insightful to listeners, and I hope they think for themselves and comment and talk about what we, what we all have – blind spots in logic and ethics. Uh, so if there's any ethical or problematic things, bring them up to us. Also add your own yeah, insight. Uh, I think this is a conversation. It's not Anna an answer. Hosnier, if so, you're listening and we completely fucked up everything about our interpretation of this film, let us know. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think these are the kinds of, these are the kinds of movies that are my favorite is the last thing I want to say. Because once again, I think I've said in Coen Brothers, Brothers, uh, films that ask questions are much more interesting to talk about than films that ask or answer yeah. questions. It's all oh, about I'll be the guy questions. who speaks up and says, "In it's become apparent to me through the Pick the Flick tier that a core group of our most dedicated fans are very insightful and intelligent and consider very weighty philosophical issues a lot of the time. And I really appreciate that because that's the kind of shit I like. And I, it really means a lot to me that we're putting, <laughs> but maybe throw that, we're putting that energy there. out into the world and it's coming back. It means like our people found us, you know, and we're doing it right and everyone's connecting and vibing, yeah. right? That said, I really appreciated when someone threw in like, hey, watch Strange Brew. Fuck it. Like, have a good time, guys. Yeah, fuck yeah. it. Have a good time. We do love all of for you for reasons. all the different reasons that Michael just said. Let's keep a good, balanced diet going is all I, I want to say. I think I'm really reacting to the fact that we record these in batches, and we just covered the cook, the thief, the wife, his wife, and her lover. And I'm like, you yeah. guys got to lighten up, all right, guys? You got to throw us between this you, you, you gotta throw and Walter bone, Bashir, it's, I'm going to kill myself. We need, to, we need something. It's the new yeah. year, man. This is not how anyone wants to spend the beginning December of the 28th, year. December 28th, I'm watching Walter Bashir. About this shit. All right. Uh, I do live for this shit, though. Great film. Uh, Great film. I think, yeah. you're, I think as much as the same brain that you and I are, Michael, we're always going to be at different stages in like, what our palate's mm-hmm. ready for. So... 
all I can say is to the Patreons, uh, you know, just maybe throw two, like maybe this movie or this movie, and then we'll we'll choose a fun one and a, a downer. Oh yeah, we've had mm-hmm. a couple people say any of these three, and we really appreciate that. Also because it makes it more likely we can finagle a guest because it's more likely someone has and, a connection. Yeah, because then. Yeah, unfortunately, with this one, we had the perfect guest lined up. It's just, it's just the, Christmas. You know, stars didn't yeah. align. Yeah, um, but like at other times, we will definitely, uh, if you give us that option, we'll be like, oh, you know who's perfect for that? Yeah. And uh, give you a better conversation. And since I mentioned I haven't seen Clue because we released our Clue sketch, uh, I know DOB is interested in doing a Clue episode with us, so that'll happen. Some oh, we have him on re- on the microphone nice. saying that, so he's that, that's as good as... Uh, that's as good as done. As good as gold. He doesn't know it quite but yet. He'll but he'll be talking it's, it's about it. It's going to happen. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. <sighs> Tim Curry lives in my heart, so I will enjoy mm-hmm. watching it. You will yeah. watch it, man who has not seen Clue, you nope. fucking pleb. Didn't like Knives Out either. Come fight me. Uh, all right. Time to wrap up. <laughs> Thanks again to Zach yeah. Schwartz. As always, please, uh, if you have the time and inclination, head to iTunes to give Small Beans Audio a five-star review or a one-star review. But if you do that, type some words so you so we know why you hate us. Um, and uh, you can always support us at patreon.com slash smallbeans, where you also gain access to bonus episodes a month early, as well as other patron-only odds and ends. We're about to release a massive audio sketch project that I intend to make available to patrons months in advance. Uh, so there's some perks. There's yeah. perks. Yeah. New video show coming up. We're, we got perks and things, recreation. We got things happening. We had to take a little hiatus yeah. during this. Hey, no uh, question. Go fuck yourself. Anyway, go fuck yourself. Give us a couple bucks a month, please. We go fuck yourself, and we you. love you. <laughs>